Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Hi, and welcome to The Long View. I'm Christine Benz, Director of Personal Finance and Retirement Planning for Morningstar. And I'm Jeff Patak, Chief Ratings Officer for Morningstar Research Services. Our guest on the podcast today is Cody Garrett. Cody is a certified financial planner and heads up Measure Twice Financial, an advice-only financial planning firm geared towards serving do-it-yourself investors. Cody has also created MeasureTwiceMoney.com, an educational website for DIY investors. Prior to starting up Measure Twice, Cody was a financial planner at Legacy Asset Management. He was a professional musician before beginning his career as a financial planner. He received his bachelor's degree in music and music theory at the University of Houston. Cody, welcome to The Long View. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited for our future conversation here. Well, we're excited to have you here. So we want to start out by talking about your journey. It's kind of a different one when we think about financial planners. You made a career change, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like it was about five years ago, where you went from being a professional musician to a career in financial planning. Can you discuss what prompted you to want to make that change? Absolutely. It's, uh, it's kind of funny. I went from being a professional musician on Wednesday night to a financial planner on Thursday morning. Uh, going from what I what I call musical records to financial records, so I, I made the jump primarily. Actually, had um, a lot of people do assume that I switched. You know, they went, "Oh, you went moved into finances." I guess that's to make more money. But um, actually, I took a pay cut about to half from switching from a professional musician to finance. The main reason I made the switch was actually kind of basic in a personal sense. Of I wanted to be able to eat dinner with my wife every day. <laughs> and as a professional musician, you're working eight to five and then kind of five to eight and then maybe eight to 12. I was doing Broadway shows. I was music directing, you know, different types of shows. I was a church music director. And I, I went to a place of saying, hey, like this isn't really aligning with what really matters to me in life, which is being able to spend time with my wife, Marissa. And she was working full time as well. So it was, it was nice to make a change. And also I did feel a little bit of a plateau in that career as a musician. Kind of, I had done the things that I really wanted to do and was kind of like, what's next? And I happened to love personal finance at the same time. So it, it naturally worked out. You've mentioned that Dave Ramsey's materials were being used in a local personal finance course at your church. Ramsey's a controversial person in personal finance circles. Now that you know what you know, what's your take on him and his teachings? I actually think Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University or his books, um, a really great starting point. Um, the only thing that I don't like about financial media as a whole is because it's made for a one-size-fits-all audience, you know, they can't give personalized advice. The quote I use is, one-size-fits-all hardly fits anyone. So I think it's a great place to learn kind of fundamental financial literacy in a way. But I think a lot of the financial advisors will agree that baby steps one through three are so important. I think that I would, I would recommend it to anybody who, you know, who has debt or hasn't created a budget, you know, hasn't really aligned their spending with what provides value to them as a family. But I think once you're past baby step three and you're out of the high interest debt, I think that's when you start shifting into a more personalized approach, whether it's educating yourself through lots of different forums and even, uh, you know, Google is not a financial plan, but it's a good place to start. I, th I think Dave Ramsey is a net positive for consumers, but I think that there's a next step kind of, you know, after the baby steps, maybe you move to the, the toddler steps after that. So you mentioned one size fits all. And one area where that sometimes comes up is in the context of target date funds. I hear mm. 
financial advisors mainly say one size fits none, that they think they're sort of lousy products mm. because they don't address individuals' circumstances. What's your take on target date funds? I think, um, so kind of looking at target date funds and then target risk allocation funds, one is based on risk tolerance and the other is based on an assumed risk capacity. I, I think, again, it's one of those things where it's a net positive. I think choosing a target date fund is definitely going to be better than the alternative, whether staying in cash for the long term or maybe in a form of naive diversification, choosing a little bit of everything. Kind of ironically, by educating a lot of plan participants, I've seen I've seen employees actually elect to have 5% in every target date fund, right? Which is, again, it's uh, it's kind of that naive diversification. I think target date funds there's an assumed risk capacity, which I don't think is well aligned and personalized to the employee. It's, uh, you know, as you'll know, um, target date funds usually aren't used as much in you know, individual portfolios outside of a retirement plan. I think they're a great automatic enrollment place to be in a 401k, 403b, and so on. But um, once you have that personalized education, I think that you can shift away from that and kind of build your own target date. But aligned with the phrase I use is you want to give every dollar a job and a use by date. A target date fund gives, you know, gives your money an assumed target date uh, when you're going to spend that money. But I think it's important that consumers and you know individual investors kind of think for themselves: when am I going to spend this money, and how can I align my risk and return expectations with that timeline? And I think we're going to turn our attention to that as we get further in the conversation. But before we do that, I, I did want to talk a little bit more about the journey you've taken to personal finance. I think you said that once you decided to focus on learning about personal finance, you began consuming books and podcasts voraciously. What were some of the most useful for you, especially before you decided to pursue the CFP designation? One of the most influential podcasts for me was, it's called Radical Personal Finance, uh, Joshua Sheets. Kind of ironically, he he had moved away from being a financial advisor. He had a career as an insurance and financial advisor, as a fiduciary. Then he moved out of that career. And I listened to his podcast kind of after the fact. So as I was being introduced to being a financial advisor, he was kind of leaving that industry, but providing tons of really great education that went beyond the basics. I'm the type of person, if I learn about a new topic that's interesting, as you mentioned, I listen to all the books and podcasts at you know four hours a day, two times speed, read all the books, go to the library. Uh, so he was a great introduction to the fundamental education side, technically, but also, you know, called radical personal finance. He also had a very kind of different way of thinking about personal finance in a much more personalized way. And the second podcast I listened to a lot was Choose FI, which I've actually, thankfully, uh, been given the opportunity to be a guest on that podcast. Uh, Choose FI is really focused on the financial independence community, uh, which is, you know, kind of a movement, which, of course, has its own pros and cons and kind of limited beliefs within the industry. So uh, once you decided to go down this personal finance, financial planning path, you joined a registered investment advisor. It sounds like it was a family friend. Yes. What were some of your key conclusions or observations during that mm. time about financial planning? And specifically, I want to ask about the assets under management business model, which you've come to be quite critical of. Can you talk about how you were thinking of that as you were working within that context? Sure. When I started at the RIA, I was drinking out of the fire hose. I went from, again, musician to money immediately overnight. Uh, when I got there, I had no idea what business models were. That There were a few models. I didn't know the difference between like suitability and fiduciary standard and all those things. I learned those along the way through 
of just having more conversations. The biggest surprise to me was that financial advisors, you know, before being a financial advisor, I saw a lot of marketing for financial advice and it was really focused on growing investments. But yet when I got to a firm, I realized that the primary job was actually not really growth and accumulation. It was actually preservation. And the biggest surprise to me was I feel like, especially in retirement planning, if you're doing a retirement focused firm, one of your primary jobs is not just to help people manage their investments, but also to encourage them to spend all that money they've saved for decades. I think there's a huge, you know, flipping the switch from accumulation to distribution is such a huge, it's a significant mental hurdle. It's not even really financial. And it kind of surprised me that the financial services industry was really focused on growing assets in a time where you should actually be looking at ways to support uh, additional spending, you know, assuming that the client's financial um, ecosystem aligns with that objective. So do you think that um, the AUM-based advisors do kind of disincentivize retired clients from spending what they truly could spend? I don't necessarily think that it's the advisors who are, it's not really on the advisors, but I knew naturally the business model of AUM disincentivizes any movement of money outside of the AUM portfolio whether that's spending more money, you know, taking those big trips, you know, going on the Viking cruise, maybe as a family, paying off a mortgage, whether or not it's re- you know, reasonable or rational, um, if they'd like to pay off debt. There's, even if an advisor, I do believe there's like fiduciary in spirit and fiduciary in letter, right? So, you know, an advisor who's fiduciary in letter, meaning they're a registered investment advisor. Um, most advisors, even on the A1 model, do believe that they are giving advice in a client's best interest. But we simply can't ignore that incentive. If you imagine, let's say an advisor just launches a firm, you know, they have a potential to serve a client, you know, their first client who possibly has, let's say, $5 million investable, like that could immediately, you know, support their lifestyle needs, the, you know, the advisor's lifestyle needs. But let's say there was an opportunity for that client to spend, you know, to do something with half of that money, um, even though the advisor will claim that they have a fiduciary responsibility to give advice in that client's best interest. You can see there's an incentive there, you know, to keep the money under AUM. To me, AUM, I guess the biggest issue to me is that AUM really isn't a financial planning business model. It's an investment management implementation model. And implementation is a part of the financial planning process. But charging solely based on how big the portfolio under management is uh, really sets poor expectations for the value of financial planning outside of the implementation phase. I think we want to talk some more about some of those trade-offs that are involved in these different fee models. Before we did that, though, maybe a little bit of context setting. You decided to start up your own planning practice, Measure Twice, in mid-2021. What were the main catalysts that prompted you to strike out on your own? You know, you've already talked about some of those trade-offs that were associated with the AUM model. What were some of the other reasons why you decided to hang your own shingle? When I first became a financial planner, I never thought I would have my own firm. I thought I would stay there, maybe you know, become a partner in a firm over time, kind of transition, multi-generational type of financial planning practice. Um, most business owners seem to create a service or a product and then go find people to sell it to. Whereas to me, people were coming to me with an issue and a problem and saying, can you solve this? And the issue was, and I, there's a kind of a, an exact time where this happened. A prospective client called me and he said, I've interviewed over 10 fee-only financial planners, CFP professionals, and none of them will give me comprehensive financial advice without the expectation to manage my money. 
He said, I have my money at Vanguard. You know, I believe I have you know, what I call the time, the temperament and the talent to make the trades, to click the buttons, but I need advice on everything else, right? I need advice on when I should claim social security. And I have these legacy securities that were just inherited. Like, you know, how can I unwind these in a tax optimized way? And he said the value of that advice really didn't have anything to do with how much money he had in his accounts. And I received, it actually got to a point where I was receiving about 20 prospective inquiries per week, wanting that same type of advice, which is DIY investors wanting comprehensive financial advice, but that's it. Just advice, you know, not advice in the um, the regulatory definition, but advice as human beings, as we say, hey, can you give me advice on what I should do with my money? When people ask for advice on what to do, they're typically not asking, can you do it for me? They really want to make well-informed decisions with your guidance. So with Measured Twice, you sort of took a from scratch process where you, you know, looked at where you thought the needs were and created your firm from there. And I've seen that you've urged newbies in other fields, in your case, financial planning, to be the change that they'd like to see. Can you talk about what other changes or areas for improvement you identified when you set up the firm? It sounds like a key goal was to try to address all of those kind of non-portfolio needs. Um, But I'm wondering if you can talk about that. And also, I guess I would just like your take on whether the fact that you came from a field completely outside of finance did give you sort of a fresh set of eyes on how Mm. to do this and where the needs were that maybe some other people who had been steeped in this area wouldn't necessarily see? Yeah, those are great questions. I think in terms of kind of newbies either joining the profession or launching their own firm, there's three questions you have to ask, and they have to be asked in this specific order, which is, who are you going to serve? Second question is, how are you going to serve them? How are you going to provide value to them? And then the third, and only the third is, you know, in which way you know, should the people you serve compensate you for the service you provide? And I find that the industry is really the flipped. It's the opposite of, hey, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to charge AUM typically, you know, just you know, that's the that's the average is I'm going to charge AUM. Now, who am I going to find who would be willing or able to pay that fee? And then, by the way, like and then how do I provide value and services to make sure that I can convince them that the fee is reasonable? So I would convince anybody, whether you're just starting off you know, as an employee, as a, in a financial planning firm, or launching your own business, is you have to define who are you serving, how are you serving and providing value to them, and then only then can you define the compensation model. So for me, who do I serve? I serve DIY investors on the path to early retirement within five years. How do I serve them? I serve them with a three-month, three-meeting, truly comprehensive financial planning process covering typically 20 to 25 topic areas. And then the compensation answer kind of answered itself. A DIY investor doesn't need their money managed. So AUM was kind of thrown out. Um, hourly doesn't really work. And uh, hourly also has sort of a conflict of, you know, I will always want more information and they will always want to provide less. So I didn't want that kind of awkward awkwardness. The phrase I use is to give investment advice in someone's best interest, you first have to understand their interest. So I didn't want to necessarily charge a higher fee just because I was genuinely curious to know more about them. So I really came down on project-based three-month Every household pays the same fee for the same service and process. And I think if everybody goes through those same three questions at their current firm or at their next firm, I think they'll be in a better place to serve people really aligned with what they truly uh, believe is the right thing. So how about that second question that I asked you about whether having a fresh set of eyes Mm. helped in this journey and helped you refine what, what you wanted to do? Right. For the second question, in terms of having a fresh set of eyes, 
I thought there would be a huge difference in like the soft skills required, even technical skills required to move from being a professional musician to a, being a financial planner. But what I realized is as a professional musician, I was, I was an arranger. So part of my job was to arrange music. And that's a little bit different from being a composer. So a composer typically kind of comes up with a new, you know, fresh idea from scratch. Whereas an arranger kind of takes music that somebody else has written and then makes it better. Whether they you know, take a piano piece and orchestrate it for a full orchestra. And as a financial planner, I realized my job isn't to create something from scratch. It's the same thing of everybody has a financial plan. It's just whether or not it's been intentional or not. So a family will come to me with their current financial plan, their comprehensive financial ecosystem, right? And I'm building a bridge between that and their unique values and desired outcomes. So by, by taking what they already have and improving it, I'm actually doing a very similar type of task that I did as a professional musician. I think the fresh set of eyes um, especially came in the form of marketing. As, as a musician, I was always taught that you know nobody's going to call you if they don't have your number. I find that a lot of advisors are kind of kind of waiting for, for prospective clients to give them a call or um, kind of just waiting for that in- incoming inquiry. Whereas I came from a background where you had to network and you had to wear multiple hats. Like when you weren't performing, you were still working. Um, so I, I think that actually accelerated me a little bit in this new uh, industry. Um, I have more conversations with other professionals than I have with clients at this point. Like I think last year I spoke with over 100 financial planners one-on-one outside of, you know, working in the business. I wanted to ask you about complexity and how you manage that with your business model. You charge clients a flat dollar fee to provide them with a comprehensive financial plan. And that basic fee is the same for every household, but doesn't the level of complexity vary widely for every household? It seems that there's the risk that some households would underpay relative to the time you put into their plan, whereas people with very simple situations might relatively overpay? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I kind of avoid that misalignment of complexity really by narrowing down on my niche. So for example, if I'm working with DIY investors on the path to early retirement, so early retirement being before age 60, before that you know that 59 and a half, uh, 10% penalty comes in, and also they're going to retire within five years. So you know the the financial advisory industry actually says that uh, complexity is based on assets. Um, in that case, um, the average client I serve has about two and a half million dollars investable. They're you know in their uh, early fifties, you know family, kids. Um, so the complexity actually like I've I've kind of narrowed in the complexity by serving a specific niche. And a big part of why I don't charge differently for different people is complexity is also somewhat subjective. So you know some financial advisors charge more if you're married versus single, right? Um, you know, you, I think if you start going down this like kind of checklist uh, menu of, hey, like, do you have a W-2 job? Are you self-employed? Do you own businesses? Do you own real estate? If you start going uh, over this menu, you realize that the complexity of those individual items also varies. So my way of getting away from complexity or making it unfair to some and uh, not to others is I go through the same exact process and consider the same exact topic areas for every client going through the process. And I I also don't offer any limited scope engagements. So every financial planning client has to go through this truly comprehensive engagement. And it typically takes about 20 hours, including time with the client and on the back end to create the financial plan. Although I I charge by the project, but not by the hour. So your firm is no longer accepting new clients and your referring would be clients to the advice only network. 
I guess the question is why stop taking new clients? Why not hire other advisors who are using your same general mindset to help people sort this stuff out? The decision to stay solo, to not hire, I got to, I, got, I got to that crossroads that Michael Kitsis talks about where you're like, do I stay solo? Do I create a boutique firm or go enterprise with this? And what I realized is, you know, individually, I could probably serve 50 clients really well in terms of providing that conference of financial planning over time, you know, maybe changing to an ongoing business model rather than a project-based. But I believe it actually kind of came to me um, in the same way that um, the idea to launch my own firm came to me is that hundreds and thousands of people are asking to learn about my process. You know, the incoming uh, demand ex- definitely exceeded the supply. But I-, I found out that instead of trying to maximize my ability to do financial planning one-on-one, I believe I will have a larger impact using a one-to-many approach. And what I mean by that at this point is not necessarily providing group coaching to individual investors, but teaching hundreds and thousands of other financial planners how I do my entire financial planning process. And I I think if I equip new aspiring financial planners with the process I use to take on that demand, I think I will have a larger impact even individually doing that. And also by limiting my capacity in financial planning for this year, I might actually limiting it to about five hours per week. I can then focus, I, I own three other businesses. So I can focus on those three other businesses to really make that impact go much further than trying to just maximize how many hours I can spend working on one-on-one. Sorry, you mentioned it. What are the three other businesses? So Measure Twice Money started off first, actually before I launched my firm, which is an educational resource, really really a blog right now, an educational resource for DIY investors, whether or not they use a financial advisor or not. Uh, it's specifically not tied to my REA. So instead of saying, hey, here's a little bit of education, and by the way, if you want to learn more, set up a free consultation, I just gave away all the education. I really do believe that you know you should give uh, give to others without expecting anything in return. And ironically, that's kind of the best form of marketing uh, from my experience. Uh, the, the second is Measure Twice Financial, which we've talked about. Measure Twice Planners is my new educational platform that's teaching other financial advisors my entire financial planning process in full transparency, all the templates and tools I use. Uh, it's a seven-hour video course showing how I do it so that others can either replicate it or just take nuggets from that to improve their own process. And then Measure Twice Mentors uh, is something, uh, I, you know, I've bought the um, website so far, but that's really going to be, I want aspiring financial planners and financial advisors to come into this industry, learning about the industry from a place of transparency and generosity, rather than the traditional way of learning how to become a salesperson. You know, that, that it's a product-based industry that sales, uh, I know I'll get in trouble for this a little bit, but I also believe that uh, investment management in a way is a product. It's just sold in a different way. So uh, Measure Twice Mentors is a way for aspiring financial planners to be mentored one-on-one from other practicing financial planners who really align with who and how they want to serve moving forward. Thanks. That's helpful. And I think actually we want to talk about some of those other educational activities that you engage in a little bit later in our conversation. Before we get there, though, I wanted to turn back to the AUM based business model. And I think one argument that AUM based advisors make is that they can actually execute the advice they're giving, whereas other business models Mm -hmm. are leaving it up to the client to execute. And sometimes things just may not get done. Do you think that's a valid argument? I think the argument really comes from incentives. Again, that an AUM advisor actually has an incentive not to educate clients to execute their own well-informed decisions. 
Um, since I don't manage any client investments, I actually, I have to double down on that personalized education to help families understand what to do, how to do it, why they're doing it ultimately in alignment with their own values and desired outcomes. Um, anytime somebody tells me, oh, well, you know, that model doesn't work because people will not actually implement the advice. Um, it really comes down to, it's, it's really not their fault. It would be my fault as the advisor to not fully equip them and empower them with education to make those well-informed decisions. So I really view financial planning as, as really a personalized education process, whereas a lot of financial advisors see financial planning more as hopefully not a loss leader and a gateway just to AUM, but they see it as just like a value add. And I believe that financial planning is such a valuable service in and of itself. So I wanted to follow up on that. Another thing that we often hear from advisors is that advisors who are overseeing client portfolios earn their keep in a year like last year where everything mm -hmm. was down because they keep their clients invested. And indeed, our data do show that investors often hurt themselves with these poor timing decisions where they're selling themselves out of stocks or bonds in a year like 2022. What do you think of that argument, that if you are entrusted with overseeing a portfolio, that that really does help produce a better client outcome? I think this really comes down, I see it less as a value of working with an advisor, but more of a really wide gap, typically, between risk tolerance and risk capacity. Um, I find that advisors kind of, instead of building a bridge between or narrowing the gap between risk capacity, which is more, you know, the objective ability and need for risk in a portfolio, and then risk tolerance, that's, you know, the subjective kind of how they respond to risk emotionally, behaviorally. I think that, you know, as a financial planner, my job is to narrow that gap, not necessarily be like the person in between those two gaps that say, hey, like if there's an if there's this if there's misalignment between your risk capacity and risk tolerance and you feel like you need to make a big shift to your portfolio, like I really hope that an advisor's kind of highest and best use isn't just to create a barrier with investors and their money. You know, that's kind of transactional way. Like they, they pay me, I tell them what to do. You know, they pay me, I manage their money. They pay me, I stop them from making stupid mistakes. Like I, I think it, it is a value add to manage money, but I would really hope that that barrier is less of a barrier and more of a bridge to, to really deeper mental framework conversations. Again, like most of, most of the issues with, you know, those average investor charts you see, the average investor who pulls in, in and out of the market. Um, the issue is less about like, you know, the the issue is not them like going into the account and making trades. The issue is that belief that they're having and the action that they're taking based on that. Typically, it's a limited and negative kind of automatic negative thought. So I really take a like almost like a cognitive behavioral approach and a stoic approach to education and that a financial advisor's highest and best use isn't to stop somebody from making you know, transactional actions, their highest and best use is to truly help the family understand that the money has actually been aligned with what they want it to support in their life. And, I, you know, if somebody's worried about how their money is invested when the stock market goes down or, you know, is, is volatile, that usually means that the advisor hasn't clearly communicated that the way their money is invested is actually very intentional and that, they're, you know, every dollar has a job and a use by date moving forward. Maybe on the subject of advisors editing themselves or, you know, sort of setting that circle of competence, I think you've made the point before that there are actually a lot of jobs that advisors simply can't do for their clients. I think maybe one is examples making employee benefits elections. Can you expand a bit on that? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of financial advisors talk about how 
actually that comes back to the last question you asked about implementation. Like they, they won't do it themselves. Um, but most financial planning recommendations actually cannot be done by an advisor. You know, you think about any movement of money within the portfolio that the advisor manages can certainly be, you know, with limited power of attorney can be done by the advisor. But if you think about employee benefit elections, if you think about making estimated tax payments or changing the tax withholding with the W-4 as an employee or drafting estate documents, you know, most advisors are not licensed attorneys. And I think a financial advisor can certainly provide referral to other professionals and Actually, more so, I think it'd be really important for financial advisors to be more collaborative in implementation rather than doing it for a client. A lot of advisors will tell me, hey, well, the clients I work with, they just say, you know, just just do this for me. Like, just, you know, like, I just want you to do this for me. I don't want to have to look at it, especially in terms of investment management. Uh, I, I come down to that word just is really important. If a client says just do something for me, that usually indicates some sort of frustration or misunderstanding. Or, or a limited belief that they can't possibly do it themselves. So I, I think instead of advisors making, just saying, okay, like, you know, my client told me to do it for them, so I'm just going to do it for them. I would stress that we need to find a way to make financial planning and even investment management a more collaborative process than a transactional one. I'm curious from your planning practice, are there areas where you find people really struggle to get stuff done? Are there kind of pain points that where you, <laughs> you say you need to do this, where repeatedly you notice that clients just don't do the job that they need to get done? I think those actions, the, uh, the forms of implementation that are hardest to do in terms of the clients I work with, families I work with, is actually things that they want to make sure they don't mess up. It's not that they're just kind of kicking the can and like procrastinating. It's actually, hey, like, you know, Cody, you mentioned this idea of like tax loss harvesting or like Roth conversions. Like, you know, some people have told me, I like, I, I want to make sure I don't like convert everything. Like, how do I do this? So the way I help in terms of the implementation that they're kind of kind of anxious about doing themselves, we simply screen share. As an advice-only financial planner, what's, what I love about my job is I can do everything an AUM advisor does, except that the person clicking the buttons on the screen is the client, not me. So I can guide them to learn about their custodian of choice, whether Vanguard, Fidelity, you know, M1 Finance. I can help them understand their own online dashboard. I can show them how to make trades, how to review their cost basis information. Again, it's it's a very empowering method of doing financial planning. You know, I always say clarity precedes confidence. Before somebody can have the confidence to implement financial decisions, they need the clarity. So I think that our job is to provide clarity and then provide confidence for them to implement, not just by themselves, but also to create a collaborative approach. I think we've touched on this from time to time during the course of our conversation to this point, but as you practice financial planning and, and teach concepts to others, are there areas where you find you diverge from conventional wisdom? So one of the trademarks of my brand, Measure Twice, is keep finance personal. I really um, take a really personalized approach, just like, as we mentioned with the kind of the Dave Ramsey approach versus the personalized approach. I think where I diverge is I completely avoid rules of thumb. I don't talk about three to six month emergency funds or you know this percentage in bonds and things like that. I think once you're providing personalized education and advice, you can move away from those rules of thumb. A big one for me, especially working with you know families on the path to early retirement before age 60, a big one, a big miss from uh, financial advisors that I've seen is advising on whether or not, especially 401k participants should contribute to a traditional or a Roth 401k. In terms of tax rate arbitrage, I think that's one of the biggest issues is they 
they make the decision usually usually based on like their current marginal tax rate rather than thinking about their future, sometimes even effective or average tax rate, depending on their future sources of income and expenses. I'm curious, are there any areas where your thinking on a given aspect of financial planning has changed in the years that you've been learning about and working in financial planning? The biggest change for me is I used to think this job was very technical and very quantitative. Certainly, I get down the rabbit hole and I I love the numbers. But what I've realized more is it's less about the numbers than what the numbers represent. Uh, One really great example of this is looking at somebody's uh, social security statement. I was looking through um, a client's social security statement, and most advisors kind of just look at the page one that says, hey, here's your expected you know, social security retirement benefit at age 62, 67, full retirement age, and 70. Whereas I, I don't look at that at all because it's typically based on kind of incorrect assumptions for future earnings. I go to page two where I see their work history, their earnings history. And there's one example where I looked down an earnings history, somebody was making up to the social security wage base, making good money every year, boom, 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 boom. And then there was a year of zero. And then there were years of lots of income after that. I was like, okay, that's either a mistake or there's something going on there. So you know, I, I dug deeper, right? I, I believe I'm kind of like a forensic accountant for good as a financial planner is, you know, I looked at, okay, what happened that year? And what I realized is that they had adopted a child that year. So I was able to go into the next meeting and say, hey, you know, uh, let's say his name is John. I said, hey, John, I noticed that you were able to take a whole year off of work to take care of your newly adopted son. Like that must have been such an incredible, but also that must have been a scary decision to make to just leave work. Like I would love to learn more about how you made that decision and how that impacted your family. And as you know, like the question really had nothing to do with the numbers and the conversation really wasn't about the income or the lack of social security earnings that year. It really provided more clarity to me about what was important to them as a family. And that could easily transition into conversations about, you know, how would you like to raise your your son in terms of educating them about their own finances moving forward? So I was very technical and very spreadsheety in financial planning software in the beginning. But now I'm I'm always looking for, I call it genuine curiosity to go beyond the numbers and find, you know, how can I learn more about their family rather than just learning about their money? That's been a big change from when I first started to now about four years later. And has that become sort of this discussion of what might be considered non-financial matters? Has that become sort of um, a fixture of the way mm-hmm. you work with people for pre-retirees, for example, it seems important that they would have a life plan for retirement in addition to a financial plan. So has that become an increasing focus and kind of a hallmark of the way you work with your clients? Absolutely. A really good example of that would be typically when you're working with a couple, let's say you're working with a married couple, one spouse will be really into the numbers, like want to go deep into the weeds, um, you know, into the individual holdings and the expenses of each fund. And then the other spouse is kind of maybe like a shoulder (laughs) in the Zoom meeting being like, I'm just kind of here, but I'm not really the financial person. But I I really eliminated that idea of a financial spouse and a non-financial spouse from my vocabulary. I really do believe everybody does care about money. They just care about money differently. One spouse, you know, they they might love the numbers in the spreadsheets. The other one who's not in the spreadsheets or even looks at the accounts, they do care about money, but they care more about what the money supports and what it provides to their family. Like how does their money align with their, you know, their ideal life. So I definitely think um, one of the questions I ask is people come to me and they talk about how much they want to retire from their job. And and I ask them, okay, well, we know what you're going to retire from, but now let's have a conversation about what we're retiring to. How are you going to contribute and connect, you know, when you leave your job? So having those deeper conversations about what their future life will look like, or even how they can improve their life now 
in the accumulation phase, that's been huge. And I, I think that's really what builds the trusting relationship more than you know the implementation stage, which has been the primary focus of the industry for so long. I'd like to get your take on where you think you add the most value. Um, I guess if we were to cluster financial planning matters into a few key areas, maybe investments, taxes, retirement planning, household financial management, including debt reduction, in which of those areas would you say that you add the most value? I would say tax planning, 100%, like drop the mic. <laughs> tax planning is everything. So <laughs> nearly every movement of money you can imagine, right, either has a tax consequence, involves a tax consequence, or has a specific like exception or exclusion. So since nearly every movement of money has a tax consequence, you know, whether it's through investing, whether it has to do with employee benefits, whether it's buying insurance or, you know, claiming insurance, um, since every movement of money involves a tax consequence, I think tax planning is... After the CFP designation, I would tell every financial planner to like go for the EA, not even necessarily to, to file tax returns, but I think every financial planner needs to understand how to review a tax return and understanding asset tax location is huge, especially for early retirement, that balance between taxable pre-tax and tax-free accounts. You know, in retirement, it's all about, you know, we talk about the accumulation order of operations for, you know, which accounts you're going to contribute to in which order, but a huge job of mine is to help people create what I call a distribution order of operations. Hey, which account am I going to take from in which order, right? And as you know, there's you know over a dozen variables involved there. But I think creating a retirement spending plan, like taxes is everything. I think you said that you believe expensive financial planning software isn't mission critical for financial advisors. What do you think they should use instead? A financial calculator, a handheld financial calculator and a notepad. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> So when I, when I say that, it's it's less about not using software um, than it is about, you have to understand that financial planning software is a supplement to your process. It's not a replacement for the process. I think a lot of financial advisors are being trained. You know, they go through the CFP education program, they learn the concepts and rules, and then they sit down at their new job and they're saying, oh, we have e-money or we have right capital. And they kind of input the information they've gathered from the client, they throw it into the software, and then they press print, bind it, and give it to the client. I really do believe that financial planning software is not only just a, not only a supplement for the financial planning process, but it's actually pretty limited in, in the types of planning areas it can cover. For example, a financial planning software won't necessarily recognize, you know, how much paid time off the client has taken this year, <laughs> right? When reviewing a, a pay statement, I might mention, hey, I noticed that you have a lot of PTO you haven't used. You know, in my mind, thinking about physical and mental health, not just financial. A quick sidebar there. You know, I, I mentioned to every client that your physical, mental, spiritual, relational, and financial wellness are all related. And I think most financial advisors, they just focus on the financial part. And again, going back to the incentives, that's usually they're only incentivized to provide advice on the financial part of the financial plan. Well, this is a question I've had, Cody, is it does seem like the financial planning profession is moving around to really looking at the whole person. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, many planners I know have gotten the life planning designation. Do you think that there are some planners who just aren't cut out to do that type of work? Some investment advisors who aren't cut out to do that type of sort of broader, holistic look at a client? I think so. I, yeah, I think that not everybody is cut out to work on every part of the financial plan. You know, when I think about the financial planning process in my head, it's really, you know, develop a relationship with a client, 
right? Create mutual expectations for the financial planning engagement, collect financial information and also, you know, qualitative information, analyze that data, develop recommendations, present the recommendations, implement and monitor. I think that, you know, when you think about all those as possible roles, I think that, you know, people within the profession could probably sit in like one or many of those seats. So I think even if somebody's not cut out necessarily for having conversations, I think there are a lot more valuable opportunities for pair planners to do a lot of the back end, kind of what I call the forensic accountant, you know, the good version of a forensic accountant on the back end. So yeah, I, I think that people who are data oriented, you know, they, they could certainly be working just in the implementation stage or just working in the data gathering stage. Um, but at the same time, I do believe that the financial planning process does necessitate all of those processes being uh, very intentional and also making sure that at least somebody's in each one of those seats. You've indicated that you've been engaged with the Financial Independence Retire Early movement. It goes by the acronym of FIRE. I, I think maybe earlier in the conversation, you might have referenced the Choose FI podcast. What aspects of the FIRE movement appeal to you? And where would you like to see changes? Mm. So the part of the FIRE movement that really appeals to me is the first half, <laughs> the FI, less than the RE. I, I focus on financial independence, which I define as the ability to maintain your desired lifestyle without future earned income. So it's not really about not working, but rather having the option to work because you want to, not because you have to. So the part of the FIRE movement that I really love is that families and individuals are really starting to think about their life and not just the money. So you know, the FIRE movement really does focus not just on what's happening today, but thinking longer term. I mean, the name of the podcast, right? Uh, these are really individuals and families thinking, okay, like, you know, I don't want to just make a dying. I want to make a living. <laughs> so they really focus on being intentional about their money, but not just in terms of investing, but also, and this is a part I think should be emphasized even more, that there needs to be more focus on spending a lot of people in the financial independence community and otherwise are learning a lot about how to save and invest, but there's not much education around how to spend well. So I, I think that I would love the financial independence community to focus a lot more on reducing expenses that don't provide as much subjective value to your family, but spending even more on the things that do. So I would love a more emphasis on spending now that the savings and investment part uh, have been the focus for so long. How do you help your clients with that kind of mindful spending mm. process? One question that's really impactful, especially when working with clients who they're kind of in that, there's that thin line between being frugal and being cheap. <laughs> and I'll ask them this question. I'll say, you know, hey, Susan, I noticed that, you know, she'll mention to me that she, you know, she kind of has a hard time, like she, she never orders dessert, dessert at a restaurant or they never fly first class, even though they can afford it. So I'll say, Hey, Susan, imagine if I gave you $20,000, but this $20,000, you weren't allowed to save it. You weren't allowed to invest it. You weren't allowed to pay off debt with it. If you were given $20,000 and you're forced to spend it, how would you spend that money? So it actually kind of create a very strict box for Susan to be around in terms of making this decision about spending. Only in that moment do I realize what really matters to her. She'll say, well, I only get a massage once every few months. Like, I think if I had $20,000 extra to spend, I'd probably get a massage like at least twice a week. Maybe I'd pull the trigger and like hiring a therapist. We'd finally get our dishwasher fixed, right? And then I can say, oh, well, you know, throughout the financial planning process, hey, Susan, I just realized that your family actually has the opportunity to spend an extra $20,000 a year. 
So you remember what you told me about the massages, right? And therapy and the dishwasher, like good news, you can actually do those things. So I think, again, that, that conversation kind of separates their money from a moment and going through that exercise of saying, hey, just let's just imagine $20,000 is on your doormat and you have to spend it this year. How would you spend it? That's a really great way to actually understand, like, what do they actually want to spend on? So then you can encourage them to align that spending with, you know, their comprehensive financial ecosystem. You mentioned some of the educational efforts that you engage in earlier in our conversation. Your educational materials are aimed at both individual investors and financial advisors. So let's start with individuals. What's your goal in providing them with educational content? And what are you aiming to give them that they couldn't get elsewhere? I want to kind of ironically, as a financial advisor, I want to teach you know, individual investors that they can successfully manage their own money, whether or not they hire a financial advisor or not. And I, I really do believe that the industry has a long way to go. The financial services industry has a long way to go uh, in terms of generosity and transparency. Most financial advisors are not willing to you know, give very much away. They either believe like, hey, you know, if I tell everybody how I think about money or if I told everybody how I create my model portfolios, people wouldn't hire me anymore. So it comes down from a passion of financial planning. I really want families to understand that the alignment between your comprehensive financial ecosystem and your family's unique values and desired outcomes, that bridge is the financial plan. So I want to teach consumers how to create their own financial plan as a family. And then only at that point will they actually understand the value of financial planning. And ironically, when you teach people how to create their own financial plan, when they realize the value of that, they go, wow, we should actually hire somebody who does this for a living. So kind of ironically, I'm teaching them how to do it themselves, you know, giving that all away for free. But at the same time, that will actually turn around and those same families will end up hiring financial planners in the future now that they realize how valuable the process is. So you mentioned also that you have created content for financial advisors and you talked about why you're doing that. Can you perhaps give us an example of the type of content that you've created for financial advisors to help them on their educational journeys? Yes. Yeah, so I, I just finished. It's crazy how, how long it takes and how much work it takes. Uh, good for you to, for doing this podcast. Um, so I, I just recorded uh, seven hours of video content, no ums, buts, or pauses, just uh, about 60,000 words worth of a video course. And the financial planning video course lessons literally go through every part of my financial planning process from marketing to the prospective client reaching out initially, all the way through plan presentation, implementation, and monitoring. Since I decided not to hire any employees and kind of grow my firm beyond myself, I said, okay, if I were to hire an employee to kind of like, you know, take over Cody's job, like I decided to kind of create my video course out of that saying, hey, I want to teach, I want to teach somebody else how to be me if I didn't exist. Um, and that's been kind of the easiest decision in terms of, hey, I'm going to give everything away, full transparency. Any questions you have, I'm, I'm going to answer with full transparency. But I, I really don't think the industry has caught up to this place of, hey, actually giving everything away, even giving everything away for free, <laughs> can ironically lead to even greater financial outcomes for you as a financial advisor and your firm in general. What are your own go-to resources for staying current and educated on financial planning-related changes and innovations? I think you you had mentioned Michael Kitsis earlier who's very prolific and I think helps many to stay current. What else do you, do you consult to try and stay current? Um, so I, I do help moderate a, a Facebook group 
that has about 35,000 retirees or retired focused non-advisors. So I learn a lot from them. I mean, we learn way more from people's questions than we do from their answers typically. So I love, I mean, I'll, I'll see maybe 20 questions that retirees are asking every day in this Facebook group. So that's a great place to learn. I also believe that when you teach, you learn twice. So just like when I created my financial planning video course, when you teach somebody, guess what? You're going to make sure you really understand that material before you decide to teach it to somebody else. So by teaching, I, I kind of, uh, I tighten the screws of my own learning. Twitter, you know, there's a lot of great Twitter threads. I think about kind of Kitsis and, you know, his team creates a lot of awesome Twitter threads. And then uh, IRS publications. I know uh, a lot of people will be like, well, why would you read those? Those are really dry. But I actually believe that most of the IRS publications are well-written and are easily understandable, at least, especially if you're a financial professional already. Um, so yeah, the uh, Twitter, IRS publications, Facebook groups, and uh, multiple financial planner mastermind groups. So I'm in small mastermind groups with other financial advisors that are specifically advice only or specifically only serve families on the path to early retirement. So we can have discussions, you know, since we do similar things, we can learn from each other along the way. So speaking of Michael Kitsis, we had him on the podcast this past summer. We talked a lot about productivity with him and you are similarly productive and you're also thoughtful. It sounds like about how you allocate your own time and energies. Wondering if you can share any time management hacks with our listeners that might be relevant to people in different careers, different life stages, even not just financial planning. Yeah, that's, that's really great. And it's really important. I think a lot of people will say, I don't have time for this. You know, advisors will say, I don't have time to do financial planning the way you do it. And I really do believe how we spend our time is a choice. So with that said, some things that I do and thankfully have the flexibility to do is I try to only check email once a day. Since I don't manage investments, I don't have a phone in my business. So I've eliminated some of the distractions from deep work. Also, I, I never schedule meetings back to back. Uh, you know, as you can tell from this podcast, I, I usually overstay my welcome in conversations. So those usually go a little longer than usual. Um, a big hack that I learned actually from my business coach, Brian, was start every day with something called 4D time, which is it's a combination of a few of a few strategies. But uh, David Allen's Getting Things Done, you know, talks about capturing your ideas and specifically using note cards. So throughout the day, instead of using my brain to store information, I use it to process information. Anytime I have an idea about, I have way more ideas than I have time for, by the way. When I have an idea, I just simply write it on a note card. So then every morning when I first wake up, I go through those note cards and I go through 4D time, which is if this takes two minutes or less to do, you do it right away. That's the first D, do. You know, if it's something that isn't really of my highest and best use, how can I delegate this? Or not necessarily, you know, with the who, not how framework of delegating, like hiring somebody else to do it, but is there somebody else who can help me do this easier or more efficiently? So do delegate. The third is delete. So if I look at that note card and say, oh, that, that idea that I came up with yesterday is kind of silly. I'm just going to throw that away. That's delete. And the last one is so important, which is date stamp. So any task that takes more than two minutes to do, right? So you're not going to do it right away. You're not going to delegate it or delete it. You have to decide, is this something that goes on my calendar or goes on my task list? Only put something on your calendar that has to happen at a specific time. I find that people just kind of put all the work they have to do on their calendar or they put all the work they have to do on their task list rather than understanding that the task list is for things you want to get done generally, but don't have to be done at a specific time. Whereas things like meetings or, you know, appointments, you know, even our, our podcast recording today, right, that should be on my calendar because it's date stamped. So I think the biggest hack there is 
Use a calendar and use a task list. That's all you need to be productive moving forward. And when you get to that place in your calendar where there's no task or where there's nothing on your calendar, most people just say, okay, what do I do now? Like, what do I do with this time I have between these two meetings? Well, when you have the system set up, you can quickly just look over your task list and do the first thing on that list. So it's a combination of different resources from productivity around the world. But I think that do, delegate, delete, and date stamp 4D approach is a great way to at least start the day, just 30 minutes a day, you know, maybe like right when you wake up. Well, Cody, thank you for sharing those helpful hacks. And you certainly haven't overstayed your welcome here. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I hope you have a wonderful week. You too. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us on The Long View. If you could, please take a moment to subscribe to and rate the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Christine underscore Benz. And at S-Youth1, which is S-Y-O-U-T-H and the number one. George Cassidy is our engineer for the podcast, and Carrie Gretchik produces the show notes each week. Finally, we'd love to get your feedback. If you have a comment or a guest idea, please email us at morningstar.com. Until next time, thanks for joining us. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. While this guest may license or offer products and services of Morningstar and its affiliates, unless otherwise stated, he or she is not affiliated with Morningstar and its affiliates. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. Jeff Patak is an employee of Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Research Services is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analyses, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decisions.